we're going to be picking it up where we left off, and there's going to be some passages that we'll discuss as well. In our devotional reading, or if you would, the oration of scriptures that right now we're dedicating through Romans, it was a timely reading. Didn't choose it, meaning that it's being chosen as we're moving through the word. And I think you're going to see a correlation with it, as well as our story today. When I look at it, and when I realize that the previous week, the title, I think, captivates much of what now we can anticipate, which was Revelation, Lamentation, and Tribulation. It's what Elisha saw. He saw this in looking into the heart of an individual who would be self-promoting himself into a kingship and premeditatedly had commissioned a murder on the one who sent him to Elisha. Elisha knew that also as a result of what he was going to do, he would be taking severe advantage over Israel, God's people, committing heinous crimes. So that passes away from scripture, at least as far as Second Kings goes, and it continues. Or as Sonny and Cher once saying, the beat goes on. And it's a drum beat that is a dirge. It's a sorrowful march of vindictive, punishing behavior from wicked people. The reason that that's important as a theme is because we see it in our headlines today. And as Rivs noted, and he was correct, these are like headlines for today. I'm reminded, though, in verse 25, that God, even having had anticipated this and having made provision for it to not be, for you and I, a death sentence, it says in verse 25, those who commit such things, who exchange the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is something from last week, but I'm going to show you the tie-in this week. They exchange the truth of God, and it says for a lie. And then for today's reading, verse 32, look at the weave here. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They have the conviction that what they're doing is wrong, even to the point of condemnation, death. But they still do it, and they approve of those who practice them. These are two passages, two different studies that interwoven by verses apart, concluding emphatically that there's something we ought to be concerned about. And today's teaching is doomed deeds determined. God understands what men are capable of doing and what they have determined in themselves to do. But it doesn't usurp God's sovereignty that predetermines an outcome of his reign over all circumstances and ultimately a judgment that will be satisfied because he is a righteous God. His judgment, though, which is important as we were led in communion, 
has been ultimately satisfied through that which Jesus went through on our behalf. In other words, what God himself went through on our behalf allows us to be liberated from what we know to be true, a judgment that will render literally the outcome of eternal death. Because of what Jesus did and the provision that entrusting him, giving our lives to him as Lord of our life, master of all who we are, we're saved. We're saved for good things that have been prepared beforehand by God that we should walk in them. And so those are important points of doctrine. As we look into the Old Testament, they are true stories. They're not fake narratives. They're not something to simply either enamor us or revolt us. They are intended to speak spiritual truth to us that by principles are followed up in the New Testament. And so this rendering on both of these are New Testament doctrines. And you can see their correlation in where we've been studying. Second Kings is where we'll be. We're going to pick it up in the eighth chapter. And we'll also have a important jog to make um, in First Chronicles. Here's where we left off. That was the commission of murder that had happened and concluded in verse 15. In 16, we have a continued effect of evil by those who, in their position of authority as kings, compromised. Their compromise came because they chose to become unequally yoked. Leaving behind God, leading people astray regarding God, they followed the protocols of the neighboring nations and led Israel into sin. Their debauchery was inherited by those whom, if you would, in genealogy preceded them. It is true that we are influenced by those who precede us, but we are rescued by God in the process of realizing we can't keep doing that. It harmed them. It's going to harm me. I've got I've to have an alternative, which from all I understand has to be God because he's declared himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 16 gives us this next series of events all the way actually through chapter 9. Pretty problematic. But the emphasis here is what God shall do to vindicate. He will do this to protect the innocents. He will do this to render consequence to those who have defied him. It's important to see the patience of God as his desires that none should perish. He does not delight in the 
death of the ungodly, for the outcome is eternal damnation. And so when we look at these men, it wasn't that he was not in pursuit of their heart. It's that they did not care about God and had no heart for him. In 2 Corinthians, that would be a chapter reference for you. Chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what? Partnership is righteousness with lawlessness. Or what fellowship of light with darkness? That's first or Second Corinthians 6, 14. So as a result of that violation in principle, we have a nation being violated within themselves and ultimately with the attack of enemies outside of themselves. So don't be surprised if attacks happen outside of this country while at the same time you see attacks happening within this country. It's directly linked with godlessness and lawlessness. It's directly linked to laws that we have permitted to be forged by those people who in leadership have defied God, have rendered decisions apart from the Lord's heart. And the people that pay the price are the innocent. This is something, though, that is great about our nation, meaning that we can change those outcomes. And it's important to note that every election permits us to make a decision. Our problem is, is that in elections, there is also now what once would be very limited, greater and greater corruption to almost invalidate the process because much of it has not been sacred anymore. There were regulations that permitted only the vote of those who in fact both were registered and those who could prove whom they were. One day, if a person is not named by God as his, are not written in the Lamb's book of life, you don't have your ID, you're not going to get in. Doesn't matter what persuasive language you use. In the same context right now, this is the language of God in pictures right now that are historical. Now, in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahab was a wicked king, right? He was a wicked king in the northern kingdom. He's not on the page right now. He's passed away. And so this is a son right now being spoken of. King of Israel. And then it says, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. In this, two sons, sons of kings. One king, that of Judah, was cited as a good king. He made moral decisions, messed up a couple of times, noted by scripture, but overall, he was a refreshing king in a time of corruption. And he was from Judah. That king presided basically over what we would call Jerusalem proper, the city of David. So huge history there. The temple, the worship services, the citizenry. Amazing. 
God permitted it to remain in place because he promised it to David. Well, the larger portion, the northern kingdom, was altogether in a different geopolitical area. God allowed this nation to be split based on the differences that they had. God will allow a nation to be split based on the differences that we have. So the only thing that can make a difference in the differences we have is the Lord God centered between what we would say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sure where they're going, but I know whom I believe in. I know what direction I want to go in, and that's to follow him, Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can make any difference. Politicians will strive to have both sides come together, and Jesus will say, you know what? I came actually to divide even a family against itself. But is it for the purpose of going, I love division? No, it's saying that what he says is true, and a family will be divided in truth upon what he says if they do not have a life that's surrendered to him. In the same context, when you look at what Jehoshaphat had done in serving the Lord good and meritous, so how is it that he has a son that didn't follow in his ways? How is it that we have sons that don't follow in the ways of their fathers? So we continue on and see somewhat of an important detail, his age. He's in his early 30s, 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. There is speculation, I think this is right, that he's a co-regent or if he would, he's He's basically serving alongside his father before his father did pass. David tried that in some of his areas as well. He allowed Absalom to serve basically alongside of him. And Absalom had been disproven marginally and hugely in what he could and couldn't do because he didn't have a heart like David had for God, and he did not have a heart for his father. He had a reputation that he wanted, and he had fawning fans everywhere. And so one of the things that we see is that in sharing, if you would, the ideals of the world, you ultimately will share in the idols of the world. And so a divided kingdom very often can happen and a divided household can often happen when not being in agreement, we come to greater terms of concession for those not following than we who desire to follow. This is what happened by increments. And the increments grew to where they became establishments of protocol and this is the way we're going to do things now and this is the way it ought to look and as a result those who needed to be led actually became victims of corrupt decision 32 years eight years in jerusalem and he walked in the way of the kings of israel so when you hear the word israel it's not israel as a whole as a nation it's the northern 
tribes, it's the ones above them in Samaria. It's the place that Elisha has found himself governing most significantly as a prophet. And before him, Elijah. And so as we advance on, it's telling us right now that here's one of the areas he compromised in. It says, as he's walking in the ways of Israel, just as the house of Ahab have done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He, mar he married a woman that was really in lineage completely outside of God's will. Ahab was obviously a king. He found himself to be that and a lineage that was grafted to him. But the thing is right now is that everyone knew that that side was godless and her reputation obviously would have been established just strictly through him. There was nothing that we say or can find that was redeemable about her. And so Jehoshaphat's son, though, didn't seem to care about that. So whom influenced who? She influenced him. And as a result of that, he could not govern sanely, but contrary to the heart and will of God. Men can be very vulnerable in relationships to concede, especially when they are not walking in harmony with God. When there's a strong spiritual woman, though, who's married with perhaps one who seems to be so close to spiritual but is not walking with the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean her strength devotionally or personally will withstand ultimately that individual's persuasion. You need to be equally yoked. You need to be equally yoked when you're talking about even forging business alliances where you have to know that you indeed in that alliance have the upper hand and it's not something that in that alliance they have you over their contract. Better to have them over your contract with God. And so this continues to outline what's happened. And verse 19 says, Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. This is the patience of God. This is God allowing himself to withhold a judgment which would basically bring Jerusalem into absolute ruin and he's doing that because he gave Davis, David a promise. And one of the things that historically is good about that is that if God stands by his promise with David, and by the way, that was satisfied through Jesus, then it means he's going to stand by his promise with you because of Jesus. The timing is always one of those things we know not of, but whom we know in terms of being the beneficiary of is Jesus and what he says is true and what will come to pass is guaranteed. You just have to hold on. Sang a song a couple of weeks ago about that. You just gotta hold on.
And so as this continues to paint this story, God interjecting himself in by saying, but I didn't give up and I'm not quitting now. Meaning that as things move towards what we would say demise, God is going to bring a judgment to those who did not change. In other words, the word we use is repentance. If you're not going to change, then I'm going to change the outcome of ultimately your situation. I'm coming in to protect, and I will remove those who violate me without repentance. The Lord, in essence, is saying in this particular story, this historical account. So this says in verse 21 and 20, just preceding it, that there is a revolt by Edom. So what's happening right now is that we're seeing that outlying marauders or enemies of Israel, both northern and southern, are going to be invading. And we saw that that was going to be probably an effect based on our last study. There's going to be an invasion. Do you realize that there are invasions right now that are happening that at one time were put at bay because there was a defense of the perimeter? We don't let them in. When all of a sudden there is void, meaning that there is no longer spiritual guardianship by God over a territory or of a people group, there will be an invasion. If God is no longer guarding the home, guarding the marriage, guarding the fostering of rearing children, that is a void and it will be filled by an enemy. Just waiting to be able to have an influence and a decision that will render a consequence. And so God knows that. We do have an adversary. He's not into God at all, and he doesn't want you to be. And so one of the things you need to do is to say, well, I know his intention, but I am making a commitment all the more that I will have no void space in my home, in my personal life, in which can be filled by that which can persuade me contrary to what God has purposed for me to do. And you always have to keep at it. What happens when you leave your lawn untended? Well, there are two things. It grows big, and it could be lush because you've got maybe gourmet grass. And I probably should change that phrase. Rats. Grass used to be so innocent. But you get weeds. I'm moving along because it's not getting any better. Such wonderful terms we... So at any rate, there's revolt, there's invasion. There's the beginning, if you would, of the terror. And so when you see that in this nation, you need to understand it's been at work a long time because there are people that have refused to say enough is enough. We've seen some wonderful results by over the course of almost 35, 40 years of a decision that was made with regard to saying at least lawfully abortion is wrong. The error was saying, and the states have the right to determine that. I understand that. I understand it on that political level. 
because we were not forged as, if you would, a imperial government, one man making the decision or one Supreme Court saying for everyone, but they rule on the federal level and they with that give guidance on the United States level, states that ought to be united, but we know that that also is not true necessarily towards God. So this revolt is happening in verse 23. Notice this is quick. It's a quick conclusion right now. The rest of the acts of Joram, and this is kind of a short term of Jehoram. Okay, it's just kind of a nickname for him in this. And all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? That's where he was at. And Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Let me ask you, without going any further, do you think that uh, his son in his place is going to bring any better position of bringing God's people back to the Lord? I get the answer. I'm hearing your heart. No, it's not. It just continues to perpetuate and gets worse. And that's the problem with what sin does that when it's not put in check then it checks all the boxes that are necessary to make vulnerable and ultimately victims out of innocent people you'll find an account that i think is important in order to appreciate the rest of this story and so i'm going to direct you to go to um Chapter 21 of Second Chronicles. So if you conclude with Second Kings, you'll move into First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. It's about this width in your Bible between accounts. Okay? There you go. On your phone, can't tell you. But right here, it's about this width. And so what we're going to do is take a look at this man and what he was told would happen. This is an account it's from a different perspective, but notice a letter that had been left in his hands by Elijah. Normally we see Elijah just enacting just awesome judgments of God on people that were fighting with God and disrespecting the Lord and violating Israel and this is a letter of prophecy that Elijah, not Elisha, Elijah penned with regard to this guy we've just read about. This tells us in the same way, it picks it up, saying that in his days, Edom revolted. Okay, that was one of the first revolts. That was when the enemy was attacking. That was permitted by God. Libna was also another one that's found in verse 10 that revolted, revolts all the way around. It's getting uncomfortable. He's realizing he's not sovereign. But notice this in verse 11. This tells us something else about him, and that's this. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah, caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit harlotry and led Judah astray. And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet saying, I wonder if this was left in his bureau. Might have been, and some have suggested as well, that before Elijah was taken, he penned this and had it delivered. 
at the same time that he was training Elisha could be true as well. Whatever, you've got time to write a letter, write an email to someone, and it's not threatening them with judgment. This is what God's doing right now because this is how evil this man's heart was. He needed to hear the facts of a judgment that actually would come to pass. We have opportunity to write to people that judgment might pass from them, and we have a means to do it with the kindness that God has given to us in our personalities. Just seeing how you're doing. It's been a long time since we've talked. Jesus loves you. I know that in these days where it seems the world is falling apart, the fact of the matter is, it is. It's falling apart. Jesus told us this would happen. The earth trembling and quaking, volcanoes igniting, earthquakes swallowing housing divisions and populaces, thousands and thousands of people dying in the rubble of what once was a vital city, domestic refuge, gone, forests on fire, the seas being disturbingly challenged, even in what appears to be nature gone askew. What's happening? The Lord says that there'd be birth pangs and those pangs are happening by the earth quaking and quivering. We'll get used to it though. We'll find a way. <laughs> no big deal. It's just an earthquake. What is that tremor? Yeah. Four? No big deal. Seven? Come on. Can we get higher than that? We've compared just how big and bad that thing is based on the incident that preceded it. We get used to it. It's actually a wake-up call when we can put people actually in great comfort to tell them this is what's happening. Let me get to the letter. It's important to know that God literally at one time reached down to this man and this man rejected what he had heard. As a result, the consequence now is cited. Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab and also have killed your brothers, those of your father's household, who were better than yourself, behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. And you will become very sick with the disease of your intestine until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. And then verse 16 says, Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Durham the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And it just gets worse. His personal life has now been given a medical demise. His family will all fall the wayside in a judgment that God has purposed because he didn't stop in time. That's actually his epitaph written. He won't even be remembered by his people with sentiment because he permitted evil to be perpetuated in the authority he had to stop it, and he didn't. Praise God 
And this is so true, that when we do communion, we have the opportunity to allow all of those things that we could say are offense against God to be put in their place at the cross and to be cleansed by his blood, to identify with his wounding, that for us is our healing. The scriptures in Isaiah say that by his stripes we are healed, meaning that God is able to heal any of us at any time with affliction and malady that may be a word of demise. I saw my father healed from cancer and heart disease, but as a 79-year-old, the Lord allowed him to pass into heaven. And he was a vital 79-year-old. But the Lord had actually healed him of that. I had a brother whom with dementia, early onset, he was allowed to pass tenderly. He never had a strange disposition. The Lord allowed him to pass very sweetly into heaven. But he's healed. Some of you may know now through media or personal outreach that a brother to this church, by virtue of a relationship that we have with John and Candy Herzog, their son Michael is in heaven right now. He's no longer in pain. He is no longer tortured by drugs. We didn't know what happened, but the one thing that we do know is that he was raised by a mom and dad who loved the Lord. And therefore, the things that he was able to share with his mom before this time was about his love for her and John. And the things that were resonating was his burden to be free of this burden. John said that I could share that with you. We'll have a service of memorial for his life because God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. What I'm saying is, is that we would share that response would have been perhaps more clearly defined in Michael's life, but the most important response he ever made was to let Jesus into his life. And he knew scripture. If you were here at men's breakfast and had a chance to talk to him, he both could recite it and he could nod his head to it. These two men aren't even closely equated. What's being said here is that there is a time, and when the time's up, we need to know, are we going up? And are we remaining in the presence of the Lord, or will we be cast out from the Lord? And it's not him being mean, it's him being just and righteous. And his patience would have borne out to the day that we draw our last breath. No man, woman, child will have an excuse. And praise God for his heart for the innocent, too. This man was not innocent. And there are men and women and governments that cannot stand in innocence because of the decisions that they have made to pursue the vanities of life. 
and to hold up their fist against God and to say we will have nothing to do with God. And so this is actually a very sobering study, as it should be. But it's also saying that we do not have a God that gets pushed around. And when God speaks, he intends for the ear to be open. And he intends for the action of that individual to be in humility and consent. Lord, have your way with me. I understand what you've said. I have been running from it. I have made excuses against it. Have your way with me. I'm yours because I don't want to be his, the enemies. I don't want to be theirs, the world system. I want to be yours. So that's what Chronicles does. It basically takes you right to this man's judgment. And that's what would happen. And by the way, that is what shall happen to a world that rejects the Lord. A notable scripture that I'll give you in the conclusion right now on, okay, so why is it really important then to have convictions that weigh out in a moral decision? Because as we've been studying in Proverbs, Proverbs means the wisdom that equips is pertaining to morality, which is the knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong. Everything about this Bible is to drive us to the central understanding that truth isn't based on our definition, it's based on God's proclamation. This is right before me and that is wrong before me. Right, wrong, good, evil. And when people get it wrong, people get kicked out of the garden. That goes all the way back to Genesis. You got it wrong. Adam and Eve, you didn't have to. You got it wrong. So I've got to make it right. I'm going to do that. One, I'm not going to allow you to eat of the tree of life for in doing, because of now your corruption, you would live corrupted for eternity. I'm booting you out. I'm making provision of you in your nakedness. And I will show you a means by which you can connect with me through a sacrifice that you will have to seriously consider. In saying that, Jesus satisfied that picture by God himself becoming our sacrifice, that we could obtain fellowship with God without any regret, without any games, without any offerings except our heart to say, that's what I want, that's what I need. Some of us, when we're six, catches up with us when we're 16, 26, 36, whatever it may be, God's pursuit of the heart of man is awesome because what we see is that his kindness leads men to repentance and every person who has had a kind things done to them, when you know with certainty you didn't deserve it, that's God saying precisely, that's grace. It caught you when you didn't deserve it. And it's meant to break your heart. Do not be deceived, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says. Bad company ruins good morals. 
I'll leave you with that kind of as a central verse to this long story. But God's not through cleaning the house up in this story because he said he would. He would not allow the injustice and the decadence and the perversion to continue. He's weighed the hearts out. Judgment was pending and judgment for some still left in that story is going to happen because God says, I'm not going to tolerate it beyond my patience. And when it's determined that that individual shall not change, I will change the circumstance of that individual.